us forwards once again to uh, read the Word of God for us and to pray over it. Thank you, God. The Apostle Paul writes in his letters to Timothy that there is nothing like the written Word of God showing each of us the way to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Every part of Scripture is God-breathed and useful in one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live in God's way. Through the Word, we are put together and shaped for the task that God has for each of us. And so today we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that this reading and proclamation of your word would change us and form us into a congregation united in hope, founded upon truth, dedicated to love and abounding in good works to the glory of your name. Set your authority upon your servant, our pastor, Joshua Moore, that he might faithfully proclaim your word to us today in order that we might know the truth and that the truth might set us free. And this we pray in your name. Amen. Our scripture reading today is taken from Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been done is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. And this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks be to God. All right, y'all got to be real patient with me today. It's been four months, okay? <laughs> So I did include, hopefully to help a little bit, um, Russ printed these off, I believe. Thank you for that. Some, uh, some little notes, inserts, if you want to help them, maybe you know, fill those out or whatever. If that helps you, then feel free. If not, listen along. <clears throat> so do any of you have a song, maybe, that played a special role in your life? Maybe you first heard it when you were going through something and it just stuck with you over the years. Some songs define an entire generation. They are like anthems that capture the spirit of a massive swath of people during a particular time. 
One of those songs that was really important for me when I was in college was a song titled In the End by Linkin Park. Maybe some of you are familiar with that song. In fact, the song was arguably one of those songs that defined an entire generation. An entire generation of people at the time in their teens and 20s in the early 2000s. The song starts out with these words. One thing, I don't know why. It doesn't even matter how hard you try. And then the chorus goes on. I tried so hard and got so far, but in the end, it doesn't even matter. This song is a song about the apparent meaninglessness of life. In an interview with Rock Sound in 2020, Mike Shinoda, the writer of the song, says this. What's so odd about the song is it's almost talking about these things and saying, I don't have any answers, because usually a song isn't about having no answers, right? It just kind of runs itself around in a circle lyrically. And especially as a young person, that's just how I felt, he writes. That's how we all felt. We just didn't know what to make of things. And in a sense, that's still what's going on today. It's a timeless and universal thing, he says. But when the song was released in 2000 on their album Hybrid Theory, it was immediately a smash hit. It struck a chord with an entire generation. And I was one of those people. Today, the song has been streamed over one billion times. Mike said that when they would play the song live and they got to that bridge, it was so loud. And this is a, a hard rock, bordering on heavy metal type band. So this is loud concerts. The bridge, it would be so loud, you couldn't even hear the band play. Eventually, they stopped playing at that moment and would just hold out the microphones for the audience to sing that part. I tried so hard and got so far, but in the end, it doesn't even matter. The song of an entire generation, my generation. Over a decade later, the front man of Lincoln Park would take his own life. Does that not break your heart to hear an entire generation saying, what's it matter? That's not new. It's not a new song and it's not a new feeling, is it? Many right now are feeling this way. I was reading just this week in the Herald about the rise in drug overdoses since the start of COVID-19. In 2020, there were nearly 40% more opioid overdose, overdoses, reports the Vermont Department of Health. And also concerning is the fact that many uh, folks are using more potent drugs like fentanyl, which is 50 to 100 times stronger than heroin, which is hard to even imagine. Gifford addiction medicine specialist Dr. Christopher Luconis said, as the pandemic drags on, there's been a lot more relapses in people who have previously been stable. And now in 2021, we have seen an increase in overdoses, even on top of the increase from 2020. Unless you think these are all just a bunch of teenagers and 20-somethings out partying and getting high, there's been a dramatic uptick in the death toll for those between the ages 40 and 49. That's my age. I just turned 40 this summer. <laughs> Reports Vermont Vital Statistics. These are moms, dads, professionals, people with kids, 
people who perhaps once had jobs and increasingly look at life as something difficult to bear. How do I deal with this? People are asking. Despair is very, very real right now for so many people, and many are turning to hardcore drugs to deal with it. For millennia, people have been dealing with a sense of hopelessness and meaninglessness in life. In fact, we find it right now at the very beginning of our passage today before us in Ecclesiastes, a book written over 2,000 years ago. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What's the point of it all? You could almost substitute the words from that very popular song by Lincoln Park right here in verses 2 and 3. In the end, it doesn't even matter. I tried so hard and I got so far, but who cares? Does it surprise you to find these words in the Bible? Does it surprise you to find these kinds of questions in the Word of God? Someone acknowledging the apparent meaninglessness of everything. This book of wisdom at points reads more like some kind of ancient philosophical inquiry more than a book out of Holy Scripture, doesn't it? When we compare Ecclesiastes to, say, parts of the Psalms, we can easily note the difference. The psalmist looks out at God's creation, which we just read a moment ago in Psalm 104, which was a part of my heart in reading that song as we opened up, or that psalm as we opened up. He looks out at God's creation and marvels at its beauty, and he says, How great are you, God? Look at the works of your hands. Whereas the writer of Ecclesiastes looks out at the same world, and he sees coming and going of generations, rising and setting of the sun, wind blowing round and round, rivers running into the sea, and declares, It's all unending, circular, meaningless, monotonous. Surprising, maybe, to find something like this in the Scriptures. But as we go through this book together, we're going to find a lot of perplexing statements and contradictions that puzzle us and make us wonder. One example is the writer's warning for us to not be too righteous in chapter 7. Don't be too good, he says. What? And he says, don't be too immoral either. He seems to almost advocate for a middle road. When we, think, when we read this, we think, doesn't the Bible say that we should be holy and righteous and not be lukewarm in the middle, you know? The writer of this book seems to suggest otherwise. Perhaps at times we will even be frustrated with what we read in this book as he presents what might appear to many as a very pessimistic view of life. The reading this morning was pretty bleak, wasn't it? Yes. He's going to sound like a pessimist as we go through He's going to take many of the things you and I aspire to and say, it's all meaningless and vanity. Have any of you ever been to a foreign country like Great Britain or Australia or South Africa where they drive on the opposite side of the road? Has anybody ever been to a country like that before? Okay. My wife lived in one of those for a few years in South Africa. And one commentator that I was reading as I was preparing for this message today says that reading Ecclesiastes will be a bit like driving in one of these foreign countries. We'll kind of need to switch our sights to a different side of the road than what we're used to, a different point of view when we're sitting in the car. Sometimes making the switch takes a little time and we'll feel scared. So we're going to be in this book just a few weeks together. 
And you're going to have to make some adjustments as you hear statements that you're like, what? Huh? Why is he saying that? To appreciate the beauty of this book, we really need to understand, first of all, what kind of writing this is. The Bible is filled with all kinds of different books with completely different genres. So when you walk into a bookstore like a, a band, a Books a Million, which I'm sure many of you have stepped in one of those at some point in your life, or maybe Barnes & Noble or maybe some other bookstore, when you walk in a store like that, one of the first things uh, you will do will be to look up and notice the markers on the various aisles or sections, right? You're going to see books for children or poetry or graphic novels or uh, regional books or romance or books on the cosmos or religion or history. These are all different kinds of books, different genres. And the Bible is filled with many different genres, types of books as well. And scholars over time have come to separate the books of Scripture into various categories based on things they have in common. Three books in the Bible have so much in common that they have together been classified as the wisdom literature. Those books are Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. So this is a book of wisdom literature is the way scholars categorize it. So the goal of Ecclesiastes, and this is important, okay? Not just so you can go home and say, hey, I learned a little factoid today, right? Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. No, right? It's important to know these things because it affects how you interpret the book, how you understand what is being said in the book. And the goal of Ecclesiastes is not just to tell a story, as would be the case in a book that's focused on history, right? We're recounting something that's happened, like maybe 1 Kings or one of the Gospels where uh, which is telling us about history. The Gospels tell us about the life of Jesus. The goal of this book is to impart wisdom, to teach people important lessons about life. And it takes a different approach than many other books. The author is going to take a strange route to get us to what he wants us to see. Now, here in Vermont, we call this the scenic route, okay? <laughs> The author is not going to jump on the highway, which I know many of you don't like to get on the highway. You'd much rather take a, a back road. And that's, so you're going you're gonna to resonate with, with the approach that this guy's taking to teaching us this morning. He's not going to jump on the highway and take us directly where we want to go. He's going to take us up on top of the mountain via the back roads and then ride us down in the valley. He's going to take us down memory lane and reflect on the past and things that have happened to him. He'll take us through beautiful places and stop here and there in spots that are sometimes very uncomfortable, right? Maybe you've been through a spot like that. We feel a little uncomfortable. He's going to stop there and look around. All of this is to impart wisdom, to teach us some lessons. One of the ways we actually see this playing out in this very important book is right in the introduction in verse 1. Quote, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, if this were not a piece of wisdom literature, we would simply take this as an introduction. The writer's telling us who he or she is. That's it. If we were to do that, then uh, it would appear that the writer is King Solomon, right? That's the, what we would imply from what's said there, right in verse 1, if we take that approach. David's son, King Solomon was David's son who ruled over Israel. And this would seem to make sense. As the book goes on, which we will see, the writer talks about his great wealth and vineyards that he built and the great wisdom that he was given. Because of these things, many scholars actually do believe that Solomon was the author. However, 
Again, keeping in mind we're in wisdom literature here and maybe the obvious approach is not the one that is being taken. There are great, a great many others who see this as a teaching device, a way of teaching an important lesson. One respected Old Testament scholar, Tremper Longman is his name, points out that there was in the ancient world a literary form called fictional autobiography. In this form, a fictional character would be introduced by the writer. They would provide a description of his or her her's life and life course and things that happened and then offer insights and wisdom drawn from the case study of that person's life. What this means is that throughout the book you can detect that this is right, which this is the direction I lean in personally. What it means is that throughout the book you can detect two different voices. There's the voice of the author and the voice of this fictional character, a King Solomon-like figure. Basically, the fictional character's life is used by the teacher or the preacher, as he calls himself throughout the book, to teach a major point. And this is the point. Without God, life is completely meaningless. That's the point. He shows us a man, like a King Solomon-like figure, who was the wisest, richest, and most gifted man possible in that day, who was still not able to find fulfillment in this life. We could probably rattle off some celebrities or other people maybe even we know who fit that. They've got it all. And yet they struggle so much to find meaning and maybe even in the end they take their own lives. One uh, guy I was listening to, listening to talk about Ernest Hemingway. Maybe some of you have read Ernest Hemingway's books in school and there are many people have read that. Well, that's what happened to Ernest Hemingway. Couldn't find any meaning. Pointless. He thought life worse. And took his own life. How many of us here have felt those feelings if we're brutally honest? If we're honest with ourselves and with others? You and I are not even the wisest, richest, or most gifted people in the world. Probably not in our town or state. We could think of many other people who have more money or gifts or wisdom or whatever other things we look up to. And even still, I bet you thought, and I certainly have thought, if I only had more money, things would be all right. I'd be happy. Or if I could just land that job, or if I had this opportunity, then fill in the blank. The teacher here in Ecclesiastes is going to show us that those thoughts are merely illusions. And he's going to force us to confront questions that you and I would like to avoid most days. The things that motivate us are often things that are empty. We try and climb the ladder. And for what? We do all these things, and he's going to say, what's the point? I tried so hard and got so far, but in the end, it doesn't even matter. And it's true. Nothing here does matter. If there's no God. If there is no God. And he's going to use this phrase throughout the book. You're going to hear this over and over again. Under the sun. You're going to hear it repeatedly. We see it twice in our passage this morning in verse 3 and in verse 9. And we will see it over 20 more times together as we study this book. Under the sun. And the idea behind this word is this. The book speaks of two realms. Those things under the sun and those things under heaven. And when he says under the sun, he's speaking of life apart from God. 
life considered in and of itself with no God in the picture. He depicts this fictional Solomon like a person seeking meaning and life based solely on what can be found here within the confines of the material world. Success, pleasure, learning, wisdom. What he says along the way over and over again, vanity, meaninglessness, a striving after the wind is what he's going to say over and over again. And that is, if this life and this world are all that is under the sun, it is meaningless. Of course, the good news, spoiler alert, not that you needed this uh, spoiler alert. Most of you in here are, are followers of Christ. Maybe there's a few who aren't. And that's okay. The good news is that there is more to life than what is under the sun. Hallelujah, right? We know this especially well, those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. And so this book has so much to say to us right now in this very uncertain time in which we live. I think many of us are looking at what's going on in the world and scratching our heads and saying, God, are you there? What's, what, is, what is up? So I hope this will... This will speak to us with all that's going on. Let's dive in together. So now we're going to jump in just a little bit in this first chapter here and talk about some of what we see. Now we looked a little at verse 1 already. Let's look at verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now your translation may have meaninglessness or futility or useless instead of vanity. Those are all popular uh, renderings of, of the word there. Uh, vanity is the classic translation, and I think it's the one that probably most Bibles have. Uh, that's in the ESV, I'm pretty sure. But this is an important word that plays a significant role in this book. It's used 38 times in this book, in just the 12 chapters. 38 times. So it's worth taking a moment to think about it together. In Hebrew, it's the word hezel. Uh, so this would read, this first or this uh, verse 2 here would read, Hevel, Hevel, everything is utterly Hevel, is what it reads. And what does the writer mean by the word Hevel, or vanity? Well, when some of you hear vanity, you may be thinking of a piece of furniture that some women sit down at to put on makeup or something. I remember, my, I think my grandmother had one of these. Obviously, that's not what he's talking about here, right? It's not what the writer's suggesting. Literally, the word hevel means vapor or smoke. But as the book goes on, you'll see that the writer's not using it literally in that way. He's using it figuratively. If you think of smoke, it appears like something solid, like you could grasp it or hold on to it, but you can't, right? You try and you ever try to do that, catch it in your hands. It's, it's hard, right? Maybe you get a little, little bit of it in there, but you can't hold it. And it's like life. Just when life is getting good, just when things are going well, some terrible tragedy, tragedy, something happens, and your joy is robbed. This is the way life is presented in Ecclesiastes. Some commentators say, if you read the Proverbs, which is also wisdom literature, the Proverbs are dealing with things that are generally true. Ecclesiastes often is dealing with the exceptions. It's dealing with the hard cases and the hard points of life. But I really appreciate what Eric Ortland has to say about the word heaven. He writes that the word vanity means something like failing to achieve its purpose or disappointing one's expectations. And this is very much the picture we get in Ecclesiastes. 
And there are numerous examples of this throughout the book, and we're just going to look at a couple of places where we see Hevel being used this way. Verse 8.14 is one. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. He uses that word hevel. So you got a good man, bad man, same thing happens to both. He says, how messed up is that? That's vanity, right? The writer says that the righteous suffer the fate of the wicked and the wicked suffer the fate of the righteous. Another example of this is in the next chapter, in verse 2, verse 15, or chapter 2, verse 15, which we'll look at next week. The writer makes the same kind of complaint when he faces up to the fact that the same fate, death, awaits the fool and also the wise man. This I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? Why am I trying to live a wise life? And I said in my heart, this is vanity, heaven. That two opposite kinds of lives would end in identical ways. This is, on the face of it, absurd, and it makes wisdom appear to be vain. And this is what the writer is getting at, the word vanity. Now notice in verse 2, the expression vanity of vanities. What does that mean? Maybe it goes without saying. Everything's not just vain. It's the vanity of vanities. Of course, you and I know that this is a way of putting emphasis on something, right? Think of similar expressions. We might say, like our mom's chili is the chili of chilies, right? <laughs> or we might say that a person is the leader of leaders. The Bible speaks of the holy of holies, that most holy place in the temple. We say that the Lord Jesus is king of kings, Lord of lords. It's a way of giving emphasis and saying that something is the greatest in that category. Jesus is the greatest king. So the writer is giving emphasis here. Everything is completely, utterly vain. He's giving his audience the most outstanding example of vanity that he can conceive of. And he doesn't leave us in limbo about what he's talking about. Starting in verse 3, he's going to give us a long catalog of examples that goes all the way right up to the end of chapter 2. Which again, we'll take a look at next week. But for now, let's look at verses 3 through 11 really quickly. Just a few more minutes here. In verse 3, he writes... What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? There's an implied answer here, right? Nothing. Nothing has gained. He profits nothing. A couple of years ago, I took our bed apart and moved it into a different room. Me and my wife, before we moved up here, bought this nice uh, king-sized bed from Ikea. And at that time, oftentimes dealing with you know, young kids up in the night and in bed and all over the place, I got tired of Basically, Megan being pushed out of the bed. <laughs> so we said, king bed, boom. All right, that'll help with the problem. And it has, thank God. But I took the bed apart a few years ago. So we moved up here with it, built it, put it in the room, took it apart to move it into another room so that the kids could have our room because there's four of them. We had them all in our big room. Well, um, this past week, I took our bed apart again and moved it back into the room it was in before. Each time I take it apart and put it together, it's like a half-day or more project. Some of this is because kids are growing and they want privacy and all that stuff starting to happen in our family. But I wonder to myself, why did I do that? I built this thing three times. Taken it apart three times. What's the point? I may have accomplished something that helped our family for a little while the first time I moved to bed, but it didn't last. And I ended up having to undo what I just did. And no doubt at some point the bed will be moved again or thrown out or given away or whatever. So what's the gain of all of this? 
Nothing lasts. You start a ministry that helps a lot of people, and eventually that ministry has to end. You fix a car that only breaks again later. You take two hours to cook a meal that takes ten minutes to eat. And then you clean it up and do it again the next day. What's the gain? So much toil produces nothing. This is the point of the writer. None of this would be a big deal, really, if we weren't wired to want our work to matter. You want to matter. You want what you do to matter. We're wired that way. We all want to make a difference. We all want to have an impact. Gain is a good thing, but it seems so hard to find in this life. In verses 4 through 11, he looks at the natural world and sees the same thing. And we'll just read, we're just going to read 4 through 7 here. We've already read the whole thing. A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. So like we build our cities, we build our nations. Kingdoms fall and rise and fall and everything shifts around. Mountains are still there. They just go on and on and on. They look at us going like, mm, what's the point? Sun rises, sun goes down, and hastens. Interestingly, that word hasten, maybe your Bibles even have a little note there. It means panting, return panting to the place where it rises. So it's like the sun is tired of rising and falling. That's the way he writes over here. The wind blows to the south. Goes to the north, round and round goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. Might change direction today, tomorrow it's going to be blowing in the same direction, the direction it was formerly blowing in. What's the point? All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. It empties and fills, empties and fills, empties and fills. It goes to the place where the streams flow, and there they flow again. He looks at the natural world and just sees nothing being produced that lasts. Everything comes and goes. For all of the effort we put in, and toil and sweat and blood, nothing really changes. There's no direction or purpose on the face of it. Now, verse 8, look at verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Isn't that an interesting expression? Have you ever went to hear a symphony or a musical performance that was just so powerful you thought your heart would burst? Like, just, wow! That was so moving. And maybe tears were down your face for a moment. You're not just sure why. It's just beautiful and amazing. I went to hear the Charlotte Symphony Orchestra play before, before Megan and I were married, and it was amazing. But I don't remember what it sounded like now. I have kind of an impression of it. It wasn't enough to fill me up forever. It was fun for a couple hours. Yeah, that was great and beautiful. And what's the point? C.S. Lewis, the British scholar and theologian, once wrote these words. The Christian says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly, earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it or to suggest the real thing. Wow, that's profound. Under the sun, this is our lot. 
We see and hear and touch beauty all around us, but it does not satisfy. There's pleasure, but it flies away quickly. Our family got to do a lot of amazing things this summer. We saw things we'll never forget, but that was yesterday, and I'm here today. I'm back. Whether you like it or not. <laughs> so. Mm. Right, but that, those things aren't going to satisfy me. This happened months ago, weeks ago now. It's over. Hevel, hevel. Everything is utterly hevel. Now, some may think that things are going to get better, that it won't always be this way. Perhaps they're not as pessimistic as the teacher here. They think that we just need to keep trying, keep evolving. We hear this term a lot. We need to keep evolving. Progress is their mantra. With more tech, Better medicine, better government, better education, things will get better. But this person misses the radical point that the writer is making here in Ecclesiastes. Under the sun, there can be no progress because everything just appears to run in cycles without goal or gain. The sun comes up, it goes down. Generation comes, generation goes. There's no direction or plan or line to history. It's a big meaningless cycle. Progress implies some plumb line or some thing by which to measure motion. It implies some kind of standard that says this way is forward, this way is backwards. But what plumb line can there be if there's nothing outside of the material world? How do we speak of objective things? Objectively, this is the right direction, that's the wrong direction. We can't speak of that if there's no objective plumb line. Who determines where to set the plumb line? You? Me? If there's no God, no higher order. Moreover, our, our ideas of progress often are actually regressive and take us backwards. Our current cultural moment is evidence of that. I trust most of you can see this. I hope it's plain as a nose on your face. More and more and more, our culture is devolving back into following feelings, not reason or truth. Facts don't matter anymore. You can lay a fact right in front of somebody. It doesn't matter anymore. Truth doesn't matter. Experience is everything. Well, I feel this way. It doesn't matter what the facts say. This is the way I feel. We're going back to the days of tribalism and might makes right, all in the name somehow of progress. The more we speak of unity and togetherness, the more divided we become. The more we put our hands to, the more we try, the worse things seem to get. Things do not seem to be getting any better. It's not to me. I know that's true for many of you. And this is because of something called sin, right? This is the dirty word. Sin. Sin is what separates us from God. And it's what has us in this terrible predicament. In the beginning, man and woman walked naked, unashamed, together in the cool of the evening with God in a world that cooperated with them in their toil and work. When they labored, it produced fruit, and it was good. It was meaning and purpose. But they eventually turned from him and sought to seek life and fulfillment under the sun, apart from God. The result was that the very life and meaning they wanted fled from them, and death and futility entered into the world. You try so hard, and you get so far. But it doesn't seem to even matter. That was the result of seeking life apart from God. You and I now experience that same death every day when we seek life here under the sun, apart from God. It cannot be found. So how do we find meaning in this life? The implied answer at this point in the book is that we must look to the heavens. 
Meaning, wisdom will come from above. It won't be found here in our pleasure-seeking, in our knowledge-seeking, in our, all our efforts and striving. And of course, this is precisely what the rest of the Scriptures teach us. Even more, the Scriptures teach us that God, the Son who dwells in heaven, took on flesh, came down. Wisdom came down to us in the person of Jesus Christ to restore what was broken and give us the meaning you and I all long for. But to have Jesus, you must turn from seeking life in this world under the sun. You must admit with the writer of Ecclesiastes that everything here apart from God is heaven, vanity. When you get to that point, you will understand Jesus. You will understand why he came, why he was so needed. Jesus declared that he came that we might have life and that more abundantly. And the way he made that possible for us is by taking all of my bad deeds, this sin, your bad deeds upon himself, dying upon a tree as a sacrifice for you and for me. We're going to talk more about these things in the coming weeks. But now let's turn. Uh, we're going to turn to the Lord's table. Let's pray as we turn to the table now. Oh Lord, we thank you that wisdom did come down and that you came down and what the writer, the teacher here of this book knows and is trying to instill in us, to inculcate, to teach that apart from you there is no meaning. Life cannot have meaning. We can seek it in work. We can seek it in pleasure. We can seek it in, in advancement or career or relationships. And it's all heaven if we don't have you. God, I pray we would feel the weight of those statements right now. But also, Lord, take joy as we turn to this table. This table is the very picture of what you did. Of the fact that you came down so that we might have meaning. That you might restore us back to the way things were in Eden. That we could be with you unashamed and have life in you. So as we turn to the table now, Lord, I pray that these elements would be to us the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. That you would strengthen your people, nourish us, and remind us of the good news of the gospel. Pray this in Jesus' name.